Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. We have a very special guest on today's Beeson Podcast, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He's the senior pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois, one of the great historic churches in our country today. Many of you hear him probably on a regular basis on his own radio ministry. He's been here at Beeson Divinity School to speak in our Barman Declaration series, and he's agreed to give us just a little time for the Beeson podcast. Erwin, welcome to Beeson and to the podcast. So glad to be with you today and your students, Timothy. Thank you so much. Now, you're a Canadian. A lot of people may not know that about you. Tell us a little bit about your own background, your family, and how you came to Christ. Well, first of all, let me say that my parents were Germans, but they grew up in the Ukraine. And in World War I, uh, what happened is Russia feared that the Germans within its borders might mutiny. And so they became refugees. My father's family went to Afghanistan. Uh, his mother died there, my grandmother. My mother's family went to Siberia. They didn't know each other. Uh, they were born within 100 miles of each other. But after the war, they came back. Then they came to Canada and met in a little church. And in those days, you know, my uh, the men and the women sat in different rows. And my father saw my mother, and she saw him. She heard him pray. He asked if he could walk her home. She worked about a half mile from the little town. And on the way, he asked whether she would marry him. You know, she said she'd have to think about it, but in less than three weeks, they were married. Wow. Now, they were married for 77 years. My father died at the age of 106. And my mother's 102, and I still speak to her every Saturday, even though she is longing for heaven. She thinks God has uh, forgotten her address. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always say my parents would say that in the last years, that one thing is sure, and that is they have no peer pressure. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? absolutely. I always say that my parents lived so long that until my father died, I'm sure that all of their friends in heaven thought, that they just didn't make it. Yeah. But uh, they did make it. My father loved God. My mother is very godly. Uh, she came to uh, Canada hoping to receive Christ as Savior. She heard the gospel in a small church and was gloriously converted. My father had previously been converted. Now, here I am. I'm the last of five, growing up on a farm, milking cows, etc. And uh, I hear the gospel. And, Timothy, what's interesting is every night I used to pray, almost every night, that Jesus would come into my heart. And there was no change. I felt nothing. I thought to myself, I guess I can't be saved. But when I was about 14, my parents sensed that I was under conviction. And they said, don't you think it's time that you accepted Christ as Savior? And I said, well, I've tried, but it doesn't seem to work. And they said, you have to do it in faith. And so I knelt with them in this little farmhouse and received Christ by faith. And the next day, I knew that I knew God. I mean, it was mm. just as if mm. the presence of God was so overwhelming. Now, here's a lesson for parents. Notice carefully that even though I was brought up in a Christian home and prayed to accept Christ as Savior, my parents didn't take for granted that I was saved. And I think that Christian parents make a mistake when they think, well, you know, you prayed this prayer at the age of four. Well, maybe the child is saved, maybe not, you know. And so don't take it for granted. If your child doubts his salvation or is under deep conviction of sin, don't take past experience as if to say that it's authoritative at this point. 
you take the present situation and you explain the gospel that they might believe on Christ and be saved. Marvelous story, especially about your parents, their marriage, their love for one another, and how that's influenced your own life in so many ways. And you know, at home, we always read the German Bible. At least they did. We had devotions every morning right after breakfast. And uh, they would read the German Bible. That's why today, because I'm the youngest in the family, I never spoke German. But when I go to Germany, as I've done a number of different times leading tours to the sites of the Reformation and so forth, I'm surprised at the amount of German that comes back to me. And I know it well enough that if somebody's preaching a sermon in German, I'd probably get at least 75% of what he's saying. Now, you've been here to talk about the Barman Declaration in our series. Uh, You've written two very compelling books about this period, one entitled Hitler's Cross and another one on lessons that we can learn from the church in Nazi Germany today. Uh, What piqued your interest? Was it your family background, or why is this important to you? Well, you know, that is interesting. I was in a museum in Berlin in the early 90s, maybe 93, 94, and I saw pictures of the swastika, Hitler's swastika with a cross of Christ in the center. And these swastikas adorned the German churches, both Catholic and Protestant. And it was there that the idea of a book was born. I said to myself, somebody has to write a book to help people to understand why the church so bought into Hitler's agenda and why it was that the church was willing to align itself with Nazism so that you have the two flags and the very same symbol and uh, so forth, and uh, then I began to write, and God, God, I say this really, God brought the sources to me that I needed. I didn't write over there, I was just a tourist leading a tour, but when I came to the United States here, where home is of course for me in Chicago, I began to do the writing, and that turned out to be Hitler's Cross, and that's the book I suppose many people who are listening may have heard about. And then more recently, Just over a year ago, I wrote a book entitled, When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. In that second book, there's about 20% of the same material as in Hitler's Cross. But you don't have to have read one in order to understand the other. There's no uh, dependence on one another in that sense. They both stand independently. Tell us what some of those lessons are that we need to remember today. Well, I think one is certainly when God is separated from government, there's judgment, and we could go into that. There's another lesson that I didn't mention this morning when I was speaking here, and that is the the power of laws. Hitler made the laws. And someone has said, show me your laws and I will show you your God. Because if I'm my own lawgiver, I'm my own God. If the Supreme Court of the United States has nobody above it, you know, the Ten Commandments, of course, we're told uh, they have to be jettisoned then the Supreme Court, in a sense, becomes God. And Hitler made the laws, and thereby he controlled Germany. And that's why there's such a fight for the court. Of course, there are other lessons about the economy, uh, what all that has to do with the fact of rampant inflation in Germany. Hitler could have never arisen were it not for the fact that the economy was destroyed. He didn't want to let that uh, crisis go to waste, and he actually campaigned on the back of a crisis. So you have those kinds of lessons. Of course, in terms of the church, one of the great lessons is the fact that the church needs to be unified. You know, you have in Germany the German Christians who bought into Hitler's agenda, and then you have the confessing church, which uh, stood against it, and we're thinking here of Bonhoeffer and Niemöller and other people like him. 
And uh, what we need to understand is that confessing church eventually wimped out. When they were supposed to swear personal allegiance to Hitler after the annexation of Austria, um, they said, well, that's an individual matter because of Romans 13. You know, you're to be subject to the powers that be. So what happened is the church was divided. Hitler was able to find those who were unwilling to swear personal allegiance to him, throw them into concentration camps and so forth. And and so that's what it is. And, you know, there's another lesson. I know I mentioned it this morning. And that is that the church needs to stand alone. It was none other than uh, Einstein who said that when Nazi Germany came, he said, I looked to the universities. Surely they would stand against Nazism. They were silent. He said, I looked to the newspapers, thinking surely they would be in favor of freedom. He said they too were dumb. Only the church stood against Hitler's path. So we are critical of the church. You know, uh, in Germany, it didn't do what it should, but it was the only resistance Hitler had. And I believe that dark days are coming because of Islam here in America, uh, because of a liberalism that teams up with Islam, intending to really destroy our Christian roots. And I think that dark days may be on the way, but they can also be days in which we pick up the challenge and run with it. One of the things I've long admired about you, uh, you're a wonderful expositional preacher of the scriptures. You love the word of God that comes clear in your preaching. And you also have the courage to speak out on some of what may be very controversial issues. Many pastors wouldn't do that. They wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, you've written books and you've preached about some of these pressing moral issues of the day. You are one of the early signatories to the Manhattan Declaration that talked about the sanctity of life, the dignity of marriage, and religious freedom for all people. Talk a little bit about how you see this as a part of your calling as a pastor and preacher of the Word of God. Well, I really do think that a pastor should speak about what I call the controlling realities of a culture. Now, you can go the opposite extreme, and, you know, I've heard of pastors who read the newspapers maybe on Monday or Tuesday so that they know what they're going to preach about on uh, Sunday. I don't mean that. But when you have in a culture, for example, same-sex marriage, and you don't say anything about it from the pulpit, maybe you condemn it in a sentence or two, but you don't really spell out what the implications are, both biblically and for culture, how can we expect our people to be reinforced and to know what they believe if we totally avoid those issues? When the Da Vinci Code was big, you know, I preached on that. And the thing that, I, that surprised me, Timothy, was the number of people who came up to me at Moody Church. Many of them maybe hadn't read the Da Vinci Code, but, oh, my son and my daughter, they're in university and they want us to read it, you know. So the question is, how do we biblically respond to that? When Oprah Winfrey... A year or two ago, you know, was emphasizing Eckhart Tolle as the great guru. Well, it's basically occultism with a few passages of scripture to cover it. So I preached on that a couple of sermons. So it's not as if, you know, I'm constantly looking for things. But when people are talking about an issue, even during the time of Easter, you remember a few years ago, there was the Judas document and there was the whole idea, you know, that... Jesus didn't rise from the dead and so forth. Uh, I preached on that, especially around Easter, because I think that a pastor needs to interpret the word of God and relate it to culture. Hopefully, and I'm not saying that this is true, but hopefully the members of Moody Church 
are better reinforced to discuss these things in the office and to take a stand on certain issues because they've been instructed from the Word by their pastor. One of the issues that you've dealt with that is very hot right now is the question of hell. I don't mean that just as a joke, but many of us are aware of Rob Bell's recent book, Love Wins. This is constantly being talked about and written about at this particular moment. You have written a book entitled One Minute After You Die, which I think speaks to this particular issue. So summarize that book, One Minute After You Die, and then speak to the broader issue of hell and how Christians who believe the Bible, who believe what Jesus said about hell, can actually talk about that in a way that connects to this particular moment in which we live. My book, One Minute After You Die, I think has touched more people's lives than any other I've written. In fact, even this morning at your school here, a woman came and said that her husband died four years ago and what a blessing the book was. Basically, what it talks about is heaven, of course, but it also talks about the afterlife. Uh, We don't know exactly what life is going to be like in heaven, but I talk about the fact that, yes, somebody who dies, you know, a a widow whose husband is in heaven, of course he remembers her. Of course he continues to love her. You know, in other words, I'm trying to get people to realize that we're talking about something very serious here and yet very personal. And then it has a chapter on hell. And I want to talk about hell now because you mentioned Rob Bell's book. Timothy, when I wrote that chapter on hell, because it is such a difficult doctrine and so hard to get your mind around, For a few moments, as I was meditating on eternity, I mean, it's the old story, you know, if a bird came and took a pebble of dirt away from this earth every million years, the bird would remove all of the dirt, and eternity would hardly have begun. I mean, it's unthinkable. I I left our house. I went over next door to a neighbor who was actually mowing his lawn, And I just went to him and I said, you know, you had better repent of your sin because, you know, hell is on its way. And I talked to him about hell because I was so burdened by the fact that here's a person whom I'd come to know. And of course, as neighbors, you know, we'd get to know each other. It is such a difficult doctrine. But when it comes to the doctrine of hell, we don't have the option if we accept the Bible as authoritative who say, I'm going to accept the parts that I like, you know, all about the love of God and everything. And I'm going to ignore hell. The most difficult message I ever preached at Moody Church was preached this past fall, where I preached on the great white throne judgment. Absolutely chilling. But we have to accept that. As far as Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, is concerned, if you read reviews of it, and I'm not surprised at this because I've listened to some of his sermons in the past, basically what he's doing is to say, look... uh, God loves us so much, love cancels hell. How can you have a loving God and hell? So uh, the point is that uh, love wins. Uh, Hell either doesn't exist or nobody's going there or eventually somehow. And then he'll use texts like this. It says in the book of Romans, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, you and I know that theologians have pointed out for years that all did die in Adam, but when Paul is speaking like this, he means that all believers are going to be made alive in Christ. I mean, you can't negate everything that Jesus said about hell, the whole book of Revelation, its references to hell, simply because you have a phrase like that. So what Rob does is he'll fasten on a phrase like that, and that'll now become the controlling reality that everything else has to be negated. On Sunday... 
I preached on the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I preached on the fact that Jesus wept. But isn't it interesting that Jesus weeps, and in the very next breath, he pronounces serious, eternal judgment, basically, on Jerusalem. So I pointed out that in Jesus, both love and justice have to be held in balance. So I'd like to say to Rob Bell, yes, love wins, but justice wins. Justice wins, too. And at the cross of Christ, what you really have is the resolution of God's justice and his love in such a way that justice was satisfied because a payment was made for sinners. Love was satisfied because now it's free to redeem. So what we need to do is to live with both, and we can't just pick and choose. I'm glad you mentioned the tears of Jesus. I heard an evangelical theologian say one time that when Christians think about hell and when we talk about it in our sermons and our teaching, we should always do it with not with this sense of what they say in German, Schadenfreude, this delight in the suffering of mm-hmm. others, but always yeah. with a sense of uh, humility and yeah. with a sense of tears, with evangelical tears. And I think that's the gospel way. That's the Jesus way. Yeah. But not to back away from the truth that is there, that's so central. Because uh, as you were saying there about the cross, to eliminate hell is really to degrade atonement, isn't it? It really is. And, of course, the point that we've always said is that Jesus on the cross endured hell for us who believe. And so what we need to do is to recognize that our sin was so serious. You know, Jonathan Edwards dealt with this. Because if you ask the question, why do you have to suffer eternally? First of all, because of the greatness of the sin in accordance with the greatness of the being against whom it is committed. And furthermore, we are eternally guilty. That's the point. So it's a difficult doctrine. Not everybody in hell is going to suffer the same fate. Luke 12:48, unto whom much is given, much are required. And, you know, those who've heard the gospel many times, their suffering is going to be much more severe than the person who had no clear exposition of the gospel or maybe grew up not even hearing about Jesus. So justice is going to be applied, but at the same time, we can't ignore its reality. So at the end of the day, we want to affirm that God is both love and just in all that he does, and neither is compromised. That's right. And so uh, we have to say that if we're going to be true to the scriptures. Now, uh, another controversial topic, I'm talking to you about controversial topics. I know sometimes you're probably preaching through uh, Deuteronomy or the Psalms, and there's nothing controversial in your sermon. (laughs) But somehow you seem to gravitate with such um, precision and helpfulness to these issues that some people wouldn't touch. And this is an issue that is really in our culture, in our world today. You're writing a book on Jesus versus Islam. Or Jesus versus Muhammad. Jesus versus Muhammad. Talk a little bit about that. Well, the bottom line is that my wife and I were in Turkey, where the seven churches of Revelation are. And uh, the churches don't exist because Islam crushes the church wherever it goes. And uh, now there may be individual Bible studies and all, but there's no visible churches, except maybe in Smyrna there might be a few. We didn't see them, but we were told they were there. But I had a Muslim guide in Istanbul for a day a number of years ago, and he pointed out, He said, just like Christianity showed its superiority over paganism by conquering it, in the very same way, Islam shows its superiority over Christianity by being able to conquer Christian lands and make them Muslim. And so every time you have a church, and there are thousands of churches throughout the Middle East that are now mosques, it's another triumph of the truthfulness of Islam. Well, when I heard that, I thought to myself, what 
do these stones have to say to the evangelical church in America today about Islam? So I came up with seven lessons. But even before I get to the lessons, and I may give some of them to you here real quickly, but even before I get to the lessons, I need to say that uh, I introduce it by pointing out its relevance. You know, we may say, well, the Muslims are so few in America, etc. Proportionately, that's true. But look at what's happening in Europe, where you have the uh, churches being turned into mosques. Now, they buy the churches so that it's not a forcible takeover. But where you know that unless something radically changes, Islam is going to be taking over Europe. And what does this mean for America? What does this mean when I saw a sign in Dearborn, Michigan, that really in the minds of one person really summed up Islam in America? The sign was, we will use the Constitution to destroy the Constitution. The Brotherhood, uh, their game plan was found by the FBI when the FBI were doing a trial. They said they're going to use lawsuits and the threat of lawsuits. They're going to insist on their rights to a fault. Uh, you know, freedom of religion. They are going to practice Sharia law in uh, uh, culturally within their own groups until they become strong enough. And basically, they're going to build lots of mosques. Mosques should be bigger than the buildings around it, etc. Because what we're going to do is, it is now stealth jihad. So the average American thinks, well, you know, as long as we don't have terrorism, uh, we're okay. Ah, oh, no. The infiltration of Islam even into the intelligence community is indeed something that should give us pause. But let me uh, give you a few lessons. Number one, the existence of any church or denomination cannot be taken for granted. When you look at a map of the Middle East, whether it's Syria or um, Iraq, Iran, all of those at one time were nominally Christian countries, you know. And look at what happened to them. So can we think that that can't happen to us? Absolutely. I discuss in the Moody Church, I, I discuss in the book, what would Moody Church look like as a mosque? Probably have four minarets because it's a prominent church. Muslims come from all over Chicago to pray at the Moody Church. Let's not say that that can't happen. So it's a warning to the church. A second one is the danger of compromise. Um, I think that it isn't necessarily always the church's fault when it doesn't survive persecution, as in the case of Islam. But clearly there were some serious compromises in those seven churches that made them vulnerable to Islam. So I discussed those. And then um, the need to accept persecution. I went through what it's like for Islam to come over and to take a, a land or a church. And the question is whether or not we're up to that. There's another lesson, and that is that even when the church is in the hands of the devil, it is still in the hands of God. You know, a, a, a remark attributed to Luther, even the devil is God's devil. I discuss Smyrna, because in addition to the early persecution, Smyrna was actually burned to the ground in 1922. Half a million people in this inferno, many of them jumping into the water. And I talk about the church in Smyrna as being in this terrible holocaust and what that means, and how even there we have to see God and his faithfulness. And then I talk about uh, the cross. Uh, in Islam, it is believed, you know, that Jesus uh, didn't die on the cross. I discuss how evangelical churches in America today, some of them are taking down their crosses in order to, to appease Islam. Hospitals in Europe are taking down crucifixes because they're offending Muslims? To what extent are we going to hide the cross and the whole implication? And then I talk about um, how a remnant is going to be saved and what all that means. And 
It ends with a real appeal to the church to be willing to stand alone, to have courage, and to um, burn a light wherever God has planted us. And if we should die, uh, we should see the value of martyrdom and we should see the big picture. Now, that's a quick summary of the book. Well, it's a grim picture, but I think the bright light is that Jesus Christ is risen. He is victor, and we have signed up to follow him wherever his love will lead us. Timothy, I have to say this because you're a scholar with regard to the uh, reformers. I skipped one of the chapters. One of them is entitled, Things Are Not What They Appear To Be. You remember what I said about the Muslim guide mm. saying that just as uh, you know, Christianity overcame paganism, Islam has crushed Christianity, therefore it's superior. I discussed the question of whether or not the political and military victories of Islam proves its truthfulness. Well, obviously it doesn't because the time is coming when everybody's going to be worshiping Antichrist, and that doesn't prove the truthfulness of the religion. But that's where I quote Luther. You remember Luther, he had more than one thing to say about the Turks. And one of the things he said is this. He said, when we look around, it appears as if we're losing. I mean, you know, because Islam, it was during the days of the Ottoman Empire. They were gobbling up one country after another. We don't have those kinds of victories to point to. And then Luther says this. He said, what does a Christian do when you look around and see no reason to believe that God is on your side? Luther says, at a time like that, a Christian believes God's bare word. Mm. And that's a wonderful word. God's bare word. Nothing but the word. Nothing but the word. We have nothing to go on but the promises. You can't look outside the window and say, oh, we're winning. You know, no, we're losing, humanly speaking. But at the end of the day, he says, we know Jesus is going to triumph. We know that he will tread on the Turk, to use Luther's phraseology, that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. We've read the last chapter, and so we know how it's all going to end. Now, let me switch the focus just a little bit, still on the question of Islam. Uh, Many Americans find Muslims in their neighborhood. Their children go to school with uh, fellow Muslim children. Um, This is a part of our culture, increasingly so. Now, Would you say a word to Christians about how they should share their faith in Jesus Christ with Muslims? Or should they just not? No, no, no. No, This is very important. I'm so glad you landed there, Timothy. Uh, First of all, no. If you invite them to church, they'll probably be insulted. It'd be something like you being invited to a mosque. Probably you won't go. Invite them into your homes. Befriend them. And what you need to do is to earn a right, a right to share the gospel with them. And that right is friendship. Listen to them. Be interested in their culture. Understand that there are millions of them that are neither terrorists nor necessarily tied to any terrorism. You know, many of them just want a a home and a peace for them to raise their families. And this is really what works. The best um, apologetic, ultimately, is love. You know, in Toronto... Uh, There's a group of Christians that began, and they are committed. They move into Islamic neighborhoods. And so their children know the the other children. They minister to these people. They love these people. And it is estimated that in Canada there might be 5,000 Muslim converts to Christianity. Now, that doesn't seem many because there's a million Muslims in Canada. But, you know, they are beginning to see results. They are beginning to discover that when you give a Muslim a Bible, oftentimes he'll have a dream that night about Jesus that will motivate him to find out more about Jesus. So that is the only hope, Timothy. 
if we simply despise them and say, well, you know, you're ruining our country, how is the love of God? We're, we're confusing, excuse me, we're confusing our own kingdom with the kingdom of God. So ultimately, it's going to be up to the church to befriend these people. At Moody Church, we have a couple that uh, takes in students, uh, Muslim students, and the stories they tell are incredible. These students are oftentimes marginalized. They are what this woman did, this American woman. She put on a burqa and she went to a library to get a book just to see what would happen. She said she couldn't believe the stairs and everything that she got. Well, as Christians, we have to love. One more comment and then we're probably out of time. But uh, I read a story about a man who would go to the steps of a mosque and read 1 Corinthians 13. Muslims would gather around him. They'd expect that he's reading the Bible. There was some military passages about killing Islam or whatever. And they'd ask him to read it over and over again. They had never heard anything like that. So what you can do is take a passage of Scripture and meet with a Muslim friend and say, you read a passage from the Quran, I'll read a passage from the Bible. Let's talk, let's be friends. And God often uses that as a bridge to lead people to Christ. If I could summarize our conversation today in one biblical phrase, I think this is what you've hit on again and again, that we are called to speak the truth in love. Be sure it's the truth. Be sure it's given in love. And God will honor that and use that to his praise and glory. That's right. That's it. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Erwin W. Lutzer. He is the senior pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, and God bless you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.